Good evening. It's a blessing to be together, and I'm thankful that you're here to be a part of our gathering this evening. As has been announced in your hearing, we're continuing our study in the book of Proverbs. We've been talking about wisdom and wisdom being foundational and wisdom coming from God and wisdom being a, the ethical expression of the character of Christ. <clears throat> we talked last night about the wise and the righteous, the characteristics of people who walk in the wise path. And tonight we want to zero in on example virtues that come from wisdom. It, I suppose it could be innumerable, the virtues that come from wisdom. But what I want to study with you about tonight are virtues that are representative. And we're going to talk a, a fair amount of time about how a lot of these virtues interlock and overlap. They hold a lot in common. And, and some of their shades of meaning kind of share meaning with one another. And so in consideration of that, you, you think about the associated virtues, and they could just multiply and multiply and multiply, but the ones that we'll talk about tonight are kind of like umbrellas that encompass a lot of other virtues that you might think about. And that's about as comprehensive as I can get in listing virtues that come from wisdom is to say we're going to talk about several that are very representative of many others that will remain unnamed. Let's think about what he said in Psalms 85 and verse 10. He said, Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. This is a really interesting passage in the way that it portrays virtues. Mercy is a virtue. Truth is a virtue. And this passage says they've met together. Righteousness, of course, is an overarching virtue. And peace is a virtue. Righteousness is something we talked about last night being closely associated with wisdom in our discussion of the wise and the righteous. And this passage says that righteousness and peace have kissed so there's a real suggestion of a togetherness and a commonality in these virtues. We find a similar concept in Micah 6 and verse 8 in terms of virtues being closely associated. He said, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. <clears throat> Here a person acting with justice a person treating others with mercy, and a person being humble in their walk with God, all of those characteristics are seen as interrelated and interlocking and overlapping. Those are associated virtues. And, of course, these two passages are outside the book of Proverbs, but they represent now for us in an introductory way the concept that we'll find in the book of Proverbs where these virtues are over and over associated together. Those of you who are with us for our introductory studies will remember our discussion of the parallelisms in Proverbs, how the book of Proverbs has a great deal of instances where phrases are laid parallel or side by side, and you can look at components of those phrases and see associations that are being made because you'll have two phrases teaching the same thing in different ways. That is a readily recognizable thing in the book of Proverbs. Well, in looking at the terminology in those parallel phrases and seeing those associations, you're seeing the, 
the association between a, a lot of very similar virtues. And so that fact joins with the two introductory verses that we're using here to set this idea in our minds. Now, if you were with us for last night's study, call to mind that wisdom is a foundational thing. Wisdom involves a fear of God and a focus on God, which creates righteous values. We only briefly mentioned those righteous values last night. Tonight's study is a deeper, more detailed study of those righteous values. But then those righteous values involving good thoughts, good intentions, and good deeds is a very generic description of them. <coughs> that produces a reshaped character. And we talked a lot in last night's study and the study uh, prior to that about the idea of searching for practical application of these wise principles and applying these things and living these things out and learning from our experiences that are viewed through the lens of what uh, these values are that are taught in the book of Proverbs. So you have this reshaped character then that's reshaped by the power of wisdom. And that wisdom reshapes us to conduct ourselves with integrity, diligence, and these kinds of godly values that creates a ripple effect. It enhances our impact on other people. <coughs> it builds our reputation, you see, with other people. And it, it, it affects, or at least has the potential to affect, others around us in a positive way so that it can even come to the betterment of overall society. And the more people that act that way, the greater that makes a society or a nation. So, so there's that ripple effect of all of these things that we're going to talk about tonight. Now let's go in and talk about the virtues that come from wisdom. <coughs> One of these virtues is love. It's, as I study and read some of these verses in Proverbs, it just almost sounds like wisdom and love are synonymous. And that doesn't really necessarily make sense on the surface. But remember in our earlier studies how Christ and wisdom are so closely paralleled. And Christ is the Son of God and God is love, so it shouldn't shock us that God's Son, okay, being the expression of his love, being the personification of wisdom, see, that would make the love and wisdom so closely associated. If you look at it more or less like a, a math problem, uh, stacking up all these different things that are close close if not completely equal, then it makes sense. There's a close association between wisdom and love. Proverbs 9 and 8 says, Do not correct a scoffer lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Now I, I know that uh, maybe a focal point of this teaching is how we give out rebuke and how we receive rebuke. But there's another kernel of truth here that we can feed on for a moment if you'll place your notice upon it. This passage is talking about how a wise person will, will act. And a wise person will act in a way that they even love their rebuker. So a wise person has a love that is so strong for others that they'll even love when it's not easy. You know, Jesus talked in his ministry about, you know, if you love people, I'm going to very loosely paraphrase, if you love people that are easy to love, you know, what's that? Everybody does that. What's special is when you can love people that are hard to love, when you can love your enemy. That's when you're learning to love the way the Lord wants us to love and the way the Lord loves us. 
Well, in this passage, he portrays the idea of somebody with wisdom choosing to love someone who's come to them and said, hey, you need to be corrected. You're wrong. <clears throat> well, whatever our initial reaction might be of getting our hackles up and being defensive, and you know, we recognize we're not supposed to really act, act that way, but that's a struggle we might have. When we learn wisdom, we won't learn to love that person, not just in spite of the fact that they've corrected us, but because they've corrected us. It, you know, it's one thing, all right, you love people that are easy to love. Now you take the challenge, all right, it's hard to love the person that said, hey, David Earl, you're wrong, but I'm going to learn to love them in spite of that. The next step of learning proper biblical love is to learn to love because of that. Hey, that's a leap, and that's difficult. But that's what wisdom will compel us to do. So see this association then between wisdom and love. Love improves poverty. Everybody wants to improve poverty, right? Love is a moneyless way to improve poverty. It doesn't cost any money or any other financial resource. It costs the heart. Let me show you that. Proverbs 15 and 17. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fatted calf with hatred. Love makes that meal of vegetables only. <laughs> you know, and, and to those of us who really enjoy eating meat, and I'm one of them, when I think of a meal of only vegetables, that, that's kind of a weak meal. In fact, I, I can eat quite a few vegetables and sort of have a strange fulfilling, but because I didn't have meat, somehow or another, I'm telling myself that I'm still hungry, and maybe that's just my body saying, hey, hillbilly, you need more meat. I don't know. But I know I could eat a big bowl full of vegetables without meat and feel hungry when it's over, but if I had a third that many vegetables and just a little bit of meat, I feel satisfied. And so this is portraying to us a meal that leaves us hungry. A meal of vegetables only. And he says, when that is enjoyed with love, that's better than somebody that's killed a fatted calf that has all the meat they could possibly want, but they're in a situation of hatred instead of love. If you've ever sat at an awkward table where everybody was mad at each other, I hope you've not had to endure that. But if you've ever sat at that table and eat, the food can't taste good enough. And it can't be filling enough. And you sit at a table, table with a meager meal, and maybe some of you haven't had to do that. I hope you don't have to. But some of us have sat at a table with just a meager meal but if there's love filling that table and love filling that room and love filling that household, that brings a fulfillment. That answers to the poverty of that inadequate meal in a way that money cannot. And I'll tell you, our world doesn't understand that, but wisdom does. And that shows us the power of wisdom in bringing about love and how transforming it is to the joy of a home. Wisdom brings love that covers sin. In Proverbs 10 and 12, he said, Hatred stirs up 
strife, but love covers all sin. Proverbs 17 and 9, he who covers a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats them at her separates friends. These passages deal with the idea of love and forgiveness, don't they? I know they don't use the word forgiveness, but there's the idea of forgiveness implied in the way these phrases are arranged. We have somebody covering over a sin in love. They're going to just kind of let that go and ignore that that happened and try to forget that that happened. We have somebody here who's covering a transgression. Why? Because they're seeking a greater love in that relationship. Now we've talked a little bit about there being a, kind of a faint hint of Christ in, in some of the wordings in, in the passages in Proverbs. We talked about the presentation of wisdom there in Proverbs chapter 8. It's, it's more than just a faint hint. It's, it's a very striking resemblance to Christ and what we know about Christ. But I think this might be a couple of passages here where we're seeing another hint of Christ. And that is in the idea of love facilitating forgiveness. And Christ is wisdom, and Christ is love, and wisdom brings about a love that covers up forgiveness. You see how that forms a tight bond between all these associated concepts? Now carry along with that the virtue of mercy, which is very similar to the idea of love. There, if we think of word meanings as being clouds and some word specialists talked about families of words being in clouds, they, they, they talk about these clouds sort of overlapping, and there'll be a lot of words that the certain shades of their meaning or application can overlap with another word, and mercy and love are that way. There are certain expressions of love that aren't necessarily directly related to mercy. There are certain ways we might use the word mercy that aren't exactly necessarily equal with every aspect of love, but they certainly overlap in concept, okay? They do. And so when we think about mercy, understand we're looking at a, a value that's closely associated with another value that comes from wisdom. Look now in Colossians 3, verse 12 and 13. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If any has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Put on tender mercies, he tells us to do. And that's associated with kindness, which we'll talk about tonight. That's associated with humility. That's associated with meekness and patience. And on and on, these ideas are clustered together here. And so think of this idea of tender mercy and what does wisdom teach us about tender mercy. In Proverbs 19 and verse 11, the discretion of a man makes him slow to anger and his glory is to overlook a transgression. Some people have the idea that the glorious thing to do is get even or get revenge or dole out punishment when there's been a transgression. You know, we have that urge to sort of become the lowercase g god of our little world. And we want to go and we want to mete out justice and we want to punish somebody when we feel like they've done us wrong. On an emotional level, sometimes we struggle with those feelings. And if you're very long-standing in Christ, surely you understand we recognize we're not supposed to do that, but we have those feelings and those urges. Here is a person who has learned 
that the real glory is not in having enough power to strut around and give everybody the punishment you think they need. The real power, the real glory is in being able to forgive, being able to overlook a transgression. Because I want to tell you, sometimes forgiveness takes more work than punishment. You'll think about that. Now, what does a man's discretion do? Well, discretion is equated with wisdom in the book of Proverbs, and what does that wisdom do? Instead of him blowing up his stack and going out here and trying to get revenge, instead, he's slow to anger. I've already talked about this just a little bit, and I want to say it again. Sometimes wisdom teaches us we've just got to pump the brakes and stop. Our emotions start running away with us. Our emotions will mislead us to do and say things that are terrible and contrary to the will of God. We cannot afford to allow ourselves to go off down the path of following our emotions. Instead, we've got to stop. We've got to cool it. If that means stop talking, stop talking. If that means sit still and not act, do what you've got to do to shut it down until those emotions die down instead of letting the folly of those emotions lead you, let the beauty of wisdom lead you toward mercy. Mercy helps others. In Proverbs 11 and 17, the merciful man does good for his own soul, but he who is cruel troubles his own flesh. Mercy helps others, and in doing that, you help yourself. What does a merciful person do? A merciful person does good for their own soul. A person who bears grudges and always actively seeks revenge, they're miserable. I knew a fellow years ago that every time you went to see him, he was always mad at somebody new. It was a neighbor you know, whose cow leaned on the fence post or, you know, it was somebody who bumped into something or somebody's dog who chased the chicken. or something. There was always somebody, and he was always up in arms about something like that. And if it wasn't that, somebody said something just a little bit crooked that went sideways with him, and he was on a, in a tizzy about that. And he, was all, he always had a fresh grudge. And I'm telling you, the guy was miserable. He was absolutely miserable. When things went great for him in life, and sometimes they did, he didn't know how to enjoy it. And things went horrible for him in life, and sometimes they did, he didn't know how to get through it. And it was because he was always bearing a grudge. When you learn to be merciful, you're helping a lot of people, but it's also what's best for you. It makes you a better person, a more content person. Mercy preserves power. Power is expressed in the book of Proverbs in the sense of a monarchy, but we've talked this week about the fact that that power could be some different position of authority in different kinds of governments. Look at what he said about mercy in Proverbs 20 and verse 28. Mercy and truth preserve the king, and by loving kindness he upholds his throne. That king, by being merciful, loving kindness, 
You see the association of those concepts? Love and kindness and mercy. What does he do? That preserves his authority. That upholds his throne. Power and authority and rule in any context is enhanced by the godly exercise of mercy. Think about wisdom's association with kindness. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 4 says, Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. This passage shows us the association between love as a virtue and kindness as a virtue. And when we take that to the book of wise righteousness, we learn that the righteous are kind. In Proverbs 29 and verse 7, he said, The righteous considers the cause of the poor, but the wicked does not understand such knowledge. We live in a circumstance that really challenges us in our approach to poverty because we see a lot of things that are labeled as poverty that, that we question. We're always hearing on the news stories about panhandlers that are very wealthy or make a lot of money panhandling. And if you see somebody that looks pitiful, your, your soft-hearted side wants to be willing to help that person, but then there's always that suspicion, is this just a swindler? You know, we live at a time where a person can live in a climate-controlled, comfortable house, well-sheltered from the weather. They can have cable TV and, and refrigerated air. They can have uh, a refrigerator and a freezer and a, and a way to keep enough food stored up to last them for a month, and they can have a generous food supply and medical care provided for them, and that person is labeled as being in poverty. Now, I don't mean to be cold-hearted towards anybody who's got a rough life, but that's not poverty in the biblical sense. And so we look at that and we feel challenged. Well, I, you know, how do I find that person that's poor and, and reach out to them in a way that's meaningful? Well, that's harder to do. That's what I'm trying to say. In, in our world of comforts and a lot of different kinds of resources and help, that's hard to do. And some that we do see that are genuinely poor and genuinely suffering, if you're wondering whether or not that's out there, go work at a school for a while and you'll see it. And when you see that, it'll feel like that's beyond your reach and beyond your aid. And that's sometimes it's something you feel like you can't do anything about. But that merciful and righteous and wise heart considers the cause of the poor and it looks for that person that really needs help and wants to help them. You know, if you've got to go overseas to find that opportunity, there's no short supply of needs there. But have that kind of heart. That's what wisdom teaches us to be and to do. Wisdom teaches us to be kind to our neighbor. Proverbs 3, verse 27 and 28. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due, when it is in the power of your hand to do so. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Don't try to bluff and bluster and act like that, you know, you're not able to help, but be willing to help that person that's worthy of help. Be there for them. It makes neighbor relationships better. These are principles. We think of these things that can be hard to do, and the reason they're hard to do is because sometimes our emotions want to pull us a different direction. But in the long run, this is the easier life to live that way. To be the guy that's always nice to your neighbor, that doesn't cost you any money. You know, you can do that even if your neighbor is, is really hard to live next door to. And 
through the years, my wife and I have had some that we were really thankful to have them next door, and we've had some that were, it was just a moment-by-moment moment challenge to live next door to them. I remember some we had a few years back that, boy, they, the weekend was their excuse to party or any other halfway decent holiday, and it didn't have to be a well-known holiday, was their excuse to party loud and long at night. And I can't count the times I'd get up and put on my overalls in the middle of the night and walk over there and just sit down with them and try to reason with them about why it would be better if they would turn that music down. And I tried to be nice about it. I never complained. We didn't call the police. It wouldn't have done any good. Sometimes they were there, not in uniform. <laughs> so, you know, it was a tough situation. And eventually the time come that they got kicked out for reasons that are their business. But you know what? We did all we could to get along with them. And they always treated us well outside of being loud in the middle of the night. It's just easier and you'll just be happier if you learn to be kind to people. Even to people that really you, you, you feel like it'd be more fun to give them what they've got coming. Be kind to the poor. This goes back to that idea of love and generosity and mercy. Proverbs 19 and 17 says, He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he will pay back what he has given. This passage gives powerful imagery to show the outright power of kindness and generosity. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He owns it all. He owns the cattle of a thousand hills, the Bible tells us. There's nothing on this earth that he doesn't own. So how am I going to give God anything, materially speaking? You know, from one standpoint, from viewed from that angle, there's really no way I can give God anything because whatever I give him is already his. You understand that. But this passage portrays God saying, I want you to loan me some money. I want a loan. If I can't give God anything, how in the world am I going to loan him anything? Well, here's how. By showing kindness to the poor. God says that's like loaning him something. And the idea of being able to loan God something because he already owns everything, it would take a lot of power to be able to muster an act that would actually constitute loaning something to God. And so God uses that picture to try to impress upon our minds how much power there is in acts of kindness to other people. And so let's think about that as we think about that virtue of kindness. Even kind to those enemies. Proverbs 25, verse 21 and 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For so you will heap coals of fire on his head, and the Lord will reward you. This is a passage we talked about early in our studies that's reiterated in the New Testament in concept. We can even be kind to the undeserving. And that goes back to that idea of loving when it's difficult to love. That's when we've learned to take things to the next level. 
consider what Proverbs teaches about humility as a virtue. Ephesians 4 and verse 2 speaks of our conduct being with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Lowliness there is humility. And so he's calling us to act with all lowliness or with all humility. And how is that associated with wisdom? Well, that's what wisdom does. Look at Proverbs 11 and 2. When pride comes, then comes shame. But with the humble is wisdom. So wisdom is associated with humility. That humble person is exercising wisdom. But what does pride bring? It brings shame. It brings disgrace and humiliation as opposed to humility. So think of humility then as a virtue that belongs to wisdom. And that is something that Proverbs teaches us brings honor. In Proverbs 15 and 33, the fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, and before honor is humility. So what does he say here about humility? That is something that brings about honor. Before there is honor, you've got to have humility. It's one of those axioms, those spiritual axioms that comes from God that seems counterintuitive. People think that, well, if I want to have honor, I've got to claw my way up the hill and in my pride seek more honor. Seems like that would work to the worldly mind. But wisdom says, if you want meaningful, godly honor, humbly reject it. Humbly seek to honor God. And proper honor will come at the proper time and in the proper way. You've just got to trust God to do that when it's the right time for that to be done. When you think about humility, of course, in Proverbs, we think about pride, which is often discussed. Proverbs 8 and verse 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogancy in the evil way, and the perverse mouth I hate. So fearing God is associating with hating evil and with hating pride and arrogancy in the perverse mouth. So this passage is teaching us that we've really got to hate sin. If we're going to exercise wise virtues, we've got to hate sin. But look how he zeroes in on hating pride and arrogancy. Now look, it's easy to hate pride and arrogancy when it's the other guy that's doing it. Because then it's obvious to us. The challenge is learning to hate pride and arrogancy when we recognize that we're guilty of it. And that's very difficult to see within ourselves. And that's why we need Christian, godly people in our lives that we can trust to tell us when it's there and it's escaped our notice. Because those people might see it when we fail to recognize it. Sometimes it's just hard to be self-aware. So if I'm going to be self-aware like that and trust When my brother or my sister says, hey, I think you were a little arrogant or a little prideful about this, now I'm back earlier in the study saying, all right, I've got to accept correction and love that person because they cared enough to come and tell me. 
And here we're finding all those things rooted in that root value of wisdom. Remember a couple of studies ago when we learned that wisdom is the principal thing, that that's a foundational thing from which all these other things spring? And here we're seeing that tonight and how they're all intertangled and interconnected. It's amazing. Think about real joy and how that's associated with wisdom, having the real joy in life. Proverbs 3 and 13 says, Happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. Why is it true that wisdom brings joy? Well, we've already talked about how wisdom brings mercy and love and how that person who's loving and merciful and kind is a happier, more content person. So when you think about it that way, it starts to make even more sense. And so when we look at other passages in Proverbs and see their association between these concepts, for example, Proverbs 12 and 20, we see this again. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but the counselors of peace have joy. It's, there's always greater joy in being able to broker peace between striving parties than being in there stoking the fires. Stoking the fires may answer to the ugly emotions of the moment, but the long-term contentment and satisfaction comes from being the peacemaker. Okay? Psalms 85 and 10, which we read earlier, mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. So here we see this idea of peace and mercy being associated along with truth and righteousness, this close interconnection of wise virtues that bring us joy. There are shallow joys to be had in life that wisdom will avoid. Proverbs 14, verse 13 and 14. Even in laughter the heart may sorrow, but the end of mirth may be grief. The backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways, but a good man will be satisfied from above. Let's think about this for a moment. Those festive neighbors I was talking about a while ago, all that laughing and hooping it up was a feeble attempt to cover a lot of pain. I knew a little bit about the family and enough to know that was what was happening. And I won't go into details of how they ceased to live next door to us, but I'll tell you, it was an ugly picture. And part of it, my wife witnessed the whole thing. And they're slamming the doors and kicking doors and peeling out and throwing gravel and lives falling apart and debts that can't be paid. And no amount of drunken laughter could change what they were suffering because they wouldn't give in to which way wisdom would lead them. There are shallow joys to be had in life, but those shallow joys don't change the deep, burning hurt that comes from sin. Now, associated with shallow joy, he goes on and says, that person who's a backslider in heart, the person who's falling away from God, they're trying to seek fulfillment in following their own ways. But what does a godly, righteous, wise person do here? They seek satisfaction from above. They look outside themselves for joy. The person who finds real and lasting joy is the person who looks away from self and toward God. You remember that from our study last night? It's not about me, it's about God. You remember that? Wisdom teaches us that. 
And in the exercise of wisdom, when I'm seeking contentment in life, I'm not looking to appeasing me because me is a ruthless taskmaster. Your flesh is a ruthless taskmaster that will never be filled. And that's why there's no lasting joy in trying to feed it satiation or fulfillment in trying to appease the fleshly sinful desires. It only lasts for a moment. And then the laughter dies down and you've got to pay the fiddler. And now what are we going to do? Till your life ends, you know, that moment ends, that celebration ends in a heap. And there's the peeling out and the banging on the door and all that stuff I talked about a while ago. The person who's found real contentment has learned to look away from themselves away from the heartless, ruthless taskmaster of the flesh and turn to look to the heavenly Father who can be readily and easily pleased with an humble and submissive heart. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Now what Jesus taught us? And that's where we find meaningful joy and that's the direction that wisdom leads us. Towards real joy, Proverbs 16 and 20, he who heeds the word wisely will find good, and whoever trusts in the Lord, happy is he. You learn to look away from self and look to God for your most meaningful joy in life, and that is where it's at. Proverbs 21 and 15, it is a joy for the just to do justice, but destruction will come to the workers of iniquity. The person who is a wise and just heart, that person takes real joy in doing the right thing. And that's how that works, and that's how wisdom brings real joy. And associated with that is contentment. Look at what he said in 1 Timothy 6, verse 6 through 8. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. So here, Paul teaches Timothy about being content with whatever we've got. See how wisdom operates in that quest for contentment. Contentment comes from godliness. Proverbs 13 and 25, the righteous eats to the satisfying of his soul, but the stomach of the wicked shall be in want. You remember that meal of vegetables only a while ago, but where there's love? A person gleans more fulfillment from that because there's love there. Psalms 146 and verse 5, Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God. When we look to God for our hope and our joy and our contentment, that's when we find true satisfaction. And it's not to be found in bounty. Proverbs 27 and verse 7, a satisfied soul loathes the honeycomb, but to a hungry soul every bitter thing is sweet. Somebody who's full hates the thing that filled them. Think about that for just a moment. A satisfied soul loathes the honeycomb. You'll remember this next Thanksgiving. We fill ourselves up and then we hate the things that filled us. Sooner or later, long about Friday or Saturday, the patriarch of the home is meandering through the house grumbling, I don't want to ever see or smell turkey again. You know. That's because the flesh is a ruthless taskmaster. 
we come to hate the thing. That, I can't tell you how many addicts have told me how they hate the thing to which they are addicted and go right back for more. Think about that. Ecclesiastes 4 and 6 says, Better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. To just have a little bit, but have the contentment of wisdom, that righteous and godly life, he said that's a better way to live. To have that meal that maybe it's a meager meal, but it's, it's had together in love. That's really where real contentment comes. I've used this illustration in different sermons because it just, I think it works, and I want to use it for just a moment tonight to tell a story to illustrate a bounty, but it's better when there's someone to enjoy it with. It's better when it's celebrated in, in love and in sharing and kindness and mercy and all these other things we've studied about tonight. We Occasionally we, we buy beef from friends that raise beef and when we're able to buy half a beef, the, the packer will custom cut it and I always get them to cut our steaks an inch and a half thick. If you don't get yours cut that thick, you have a problem and you need to fix that, okay? Inch and a half thick. Okay, so my wife, there was some sickness in her family. This is when we still lived in West Texas, and her family was back in Oklahoma. So I flew her to Oklahoma to go and, send, and, and see about all of that, and the house was empty, and I was alone. And one evening, I thought, well, I know what's going to fix this. And I thought out one of those thick steaks. Did I mention they were an inch and a half thick? And I had some mushrooms. Some of you may not care for mushrooms, but I enjoy them, especially when they're grilled with a steak. And, and I grilled that thing just right. It'd still move when you poked it, you know, just the way some of us like a steak. And I have a distinct memory of getting that all gathered to the plate and shutting down the grill and coming down inside the house and setting that down at the head of a rather long dining room table. And I bowed my head to say, thanks for that meal. And I looked up at that gorgeous juicy steak and all those empty chairs. It, it just wasn't the same. A little bit of hamburger meat with her sitting there would have been a lot better. And that was obvious. It's not how much you have. It's how you have what you have and who you have it with. And how you interact with these people. That's what matters. And that's the way that wisdom leads us. And that's why wisdom leads us to greater contentment. And all of these other things we learn to be wise virtues. How surrounding that is the idea of love and mercy and kindness and, and humility and joy and contentment. All these things that make us easier to live with, and it makes it easier for us to live with ourselves because we learn more and more to be this way. That's the way wisdom leads us, and that's why a wise life is a happier life. Even when things aren't going exactly right, even when the steak is a piece of hamburger meat instead, it's just better because of the other things that wisdom 
brings to the table. I hope that you'll think about these kinds of representative wise virtues and think of the value of seeking wisdom in your life. And as we bring that to that conclusion, I hope you'll think about the wisdom of you being certain that you're right with God tonight. If you're spiritually prepared to become a Christian and you've not done that yet, you need to do that tonight. That'd be the wisest choice you could make. If you are a Christian but you're not serving him faithfully, the wisest thing you could do would be correct that course now while you've got an opportunity. And if you're in either of those circumstances, we would love to be able to help you. We'd love to assist you in obeying the gospel if you wish to become a Christian. Or if you need the church to pray with you to assist you in, in restoring your enthusiasm for serving the Lord, we'd love to assist you with that. If we can help you in either way, please come have a seat on the front while we stand and while we sing.